Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. Some people burn themselves out through peace and justice work, and other folks simply multiply that burning flame among others, sustaining themselves as well. That is what George Lakey has been doing for closing in on 60 years. Among the groups he's founded and or worked with have been a Quaker Action Group, Movement for a New Society, Training for Change, Earthquaker Action Teams, Choose Democracy, and much more. He's written 10 books, and I have to say at least because you never really know the limits of the work, energy, and seeds he's planted. He's been with us four times before, and you can listen to them all on northernspiritradio.org. But right now, George Lakey again joins us by Zoom from Pennsylvania. George, it's wonderful to have you back for the fifth time now for Spirit in Action. Amazing. I'm always delighted to come back, Mark. You've been a spirit in action for so much of your life. Which age do you count with your current vision, I guess you'd say, yourself having been a spirit in action, if you're willing to accept that name? Well, it started at age 12, I think, the action part, because I was asked by my church to give a try at delivering a sermon, because the elders of the church thought that I might have the potential of being a child preacher. And so they wanted to give me what, in effect, was an audition. So I preached my first sermon, and after a lot of prayer, I was led to preach on the subject that God's will is there be racial equality. (laughs) And that went over like a total lead balloon, as you can imagine, 1949, small town, rural Pennsylvania. And that was the end of my preaching career as a a boy preacher. (laughs) But it was certainly a spirit in action, I think. Interestingly enough, George, my wife had some kind of a similar experience. She went away to college and came back in her Presbyterian church she was part of. They asked her to give a little message, and so she did about racism, something. This would have been 1967 or so, and it did not go over well. So they they never asked her again. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, I think prophets are not generally well accepted when they come back to the fold there. Even Jesus had a hard time in Nazareth. (laughs) Yeah. By the way, do you think of yourself as a Christian? Yes, I do. Maybe not exactly the same flavor as Christian as you grow up with before you became Quaker, but how would you qualify or describe your Christianity? Well, it lines up with a lot of tradition, I think, but it's different in that I don't claim a one path to heaven, the exclusive path being Christian. But I think there are many paths to what I'm also happy to call liberation, and Christianity is one of them. I personally have either used the description of a universalist Christian or a follower of Jesus for myself. And even though that seems to put me in unison with some people, they very quickly find that there are some words, beliefs or creeds or something that doesn't match with theirs. And so I'm outside the fold, but I can handle it. Why did you learn to be able to handle, let's say, being different from the mainstream? 
that's, I think, a really key thing that I think is a history of your witness and your movement for social change. You seem to do it with immensely good humor and grace and beneficence towards people. But I think somewhere along the way, you must have learned to be able to do that. In boyhood, because my very strong identification with Jesus had me wondering how he did. And he, of course, was also in some respects a loner. So that his mom, this story goes, was wondering where he was because she was on her way back to someplace and he wasn't with her. And he went to the temple and found that he was busy doing conversation with the rabbis at the temple. And she was amazed. And, you know, you're supposed to be with me. And he said, no, no, I have my own thing to do. Or more specifically, my father's work. Yes, It's my father's work. Exactly. So I identified with all that and I thought, okay, so each of us has our own work to do. So don't expect that uh, hanging with the gang is always going to lead you to the right work. It's a question of individual discernment and acting upon that. Amongst other things, George Lakey has produced a fairly abundant number of books. I don't think you started out in your youth as trying to do that. You did one book early on, I think. But George Lakey, author, which is how people find you on Facebook, that I think can point us now at some 10 books. I was surprised when I just did a little research before getting ready to interview you is I think you came out with a second edition of Facilitating Group Learning this past year, September of 2020 on it. So I guess the COVID's good for a writer. <laughs> Very good for a writer. And I was so happy that that second edition came out because now it's an inexpensive paperback and it's got a jazzy cover and some wonderful recommendations from, for the first time, high school teachers. And I'd written it basically for adult learners, including, of course, college students. And uh, it was my lifetime's experience of teaching adults, mostly in college, but also many other kinds of occasions for adults. That was the harvest of a lifetime of teaching. And the last people I expected to be interested in it were high school teachers. And it turns out a couple of high school teachers who are widely acknowledged in their profession fell in love with the book and used it constantly in their teaching and were happy to endorse the book. So I'm very pleased that the second edition came out and it's now widely available. And so what's different about the second edition from the first? Nothing really, except the endorsements. <laughs> really? That, that's all? And that it's a paperback, yes, because the other was a hardcover. You've written so many wonderful books, and I've interviewed you about Viking economics and how we win. I understand that we've even got another book to be looking forward to? Yes, just yesterday, signed on with Seven Stories Press for my memoir, because uh, it's been quite a life, an amazing run, I'm so grateful to say, and a lot of adventure stories in it, and uh, Seven Stories Press wants to publish it, so that'll be coming out one of these days. I believe you're now 83 or 84 or something. I, I think you were born in 37, if I recall correctly. You were a child during World War II. You were there through the Korean War. And certainly Vietnam War was a whole threshold experience of it all. By the Vietnam War, I think you were clearly identified as a pacifist. Would that have been true in your thinking at the time of the Korean War? 
No, I had an opening when I was a college student. I loved when I went home for weekends to sing in the choir <laughs> for old time's sake, because I've been brought up in choirs. And I was looking during communions. The communion in my church was a pretty long, drawn out thing. So I was looking for meditation material in the back of the hymnal. A lot of gospel stuff was printed there, New Testament mostly. And there was the Sermon on the Mount. And I thought, well, I've read this so many times. Well, I'll read it again. So I read it again. And for the first time, the text leaped out at me that I shouldn't actually repay evil by knocking down and, and stomping over the person attacking me or killing them, but that Jesus had a, a superior way of operating. And I thought, I don't believe that. <laughs> so that set up in me a tremendous conflict. Because I described myself as a Christian, a follower of Jesus, but here was one of the most startling things that I didn't agree with at all. So it took a year, actually, a very, very big struggle inside me to come to the point of lining up with Jesus on that and becoming a pacifist. Very, very hard struggle. I, I became desperate at one point and read one of the major Marxist books. An American Marxist named John Lewis wrote a book called The Case Against Pacifism. And I thought, well, I'm not a Marxist, but I'll read this anyway, because maybe he'll, he'll support me. <laughs> <laughs> saying non-pacifist, because the last thing I want to be is a pacifist. <laughs> but it was impossible to say no. And so I've been a pacifist ever since. That was uh, age 19 came to that realization. <laughs> Review for me about the first book that you wrote, I think long ago. That was a handbook for the Civil Rights Movement. It's called A Manual for Direct Action. And so it was very explicitly written for the Civil Rights Movement. But then when it was published, it was picked up. We self-published in order to get it to people very quickly. And we got it to people in time for the Mississippi Summer 64, Freedom Summer, which was that amazing time when almost a thousand Northerners went to Mississippi to do voter registration and so on at risk of their lives. Some were killed in the process of doing that. And a lot of the book has to do with safety precautions, you know, ways of operating that are less likely to get you killed. But in general, it's a, it's very handbooky. It's very much a manual. And then a major publisher picked it up and published it. And so we called it For the Civil Rights and Other Nonviolent Movements. And it had a long life. It had a publishing life, of, I think, 15 years or something before it went out of print. Well, the reason I especially have you here today, George, is because I guess now it would be eight months ago, word was circulating about coming together, organizing in case there was a right wing coup about the election. The Choose Democracy movement was born out of that or was part of the fruits of that. And people can follow up on some of this by going to wagingnonviolence.org. I've got the link on northernspiritradio.org. My wife actually sat in on some of the organizing. I didn't at that time just because I'm juggling way too many things. But you were amongst the leaders of this movement, certainly part of the force for it. So tell me about what Choose Democracy was thinking about, because we came to the election and when Trump lost, all of a sudden the, the script changed a bit. So Choose Democracy, what were you thinking and what were you teaching? 
Right. Well, my aha moment was in July, the previous July, because I was looking deeply into what was going on in Portland, Oregon, where there was a rising amount of furor that was stirred a lot by Trump sending federal forces into Portland to make trouble with the peace people and the anarchists and so on who were already doing demonstrations, Black Lives Matter demonstrations. And I was asking myself, why is Trump stirring up what he knew perfectly well was a horn? Portland, Oregon has been a tortoise for quite a while. Uh, He knows he's stirring up a lot. Well, that must be A, that he's running as a law and order candidate and wants to show he can be strong. But there's more to it than that, because he also said, it's going to be 10 cities where I do this, what I'm doing now in Portland. And I thought, 10 cities, that's very much more ambitious And Portland would take care of it, but he's got a bigger scope there. He's got a bigger plan. What's his game plan? And I realized, oh, right. Of course, he's worried that he's going to lose in November. And so he's wanting to hedge his bets by creating so much uproar that he will be able to say, well, unclear how the election actually turned out, but I'm going to be your president anyway and continue because I'm the one who can actually restore law and order in our country. And Biden is obviously too weak to do that. And so I will defer my golf and go ahead and be president for another four years, no matter what happens. I thought that was the setup. And so I wrote about that in July on waging nonviolence, warning people, now is the time to start to get ready for a possible coup attempt should he lose the election. Because while it's possible to defeat a coup, including nonviolently through mass action, even if it's sprung on you, which mostly coups are, you know, without your awareness, suddenly, uh uh-oh, there's this uh, coup move. It's possible to defeat it then, but it's way, way easier if you actually prepare to defeat it. So let's go ahead and do that. So that's what I started urging in July. I beat the drums on that quite a lot. Choose Democracy was formed as a way to provide a website and a pledge of resistance and put evidence-based resources online so everybody could find out how do you stop a coup if it's unfolding and so on. We had a a grand time preparing for this possible coup. And the better we, we prepared and the more we were able to stimulate mass membership organizations like Sierra Club and so on to get on board, you know, to come on and, okay, we can get our membership more ready and so on. And then we did trainings. I trained 10,000 people to resist a coup and also train trainers so they could be training thousands of people. So we were really preparing the country for a possible coup. I was delighted. I thought, well, this is maybe the best, historically speaking, the best prepared country that's ever faced a possible coup. And it's because we we got on it. (laughs) And then it turned out that it was a terrible coup attempt on the part of Trump. And I told my colleagues at Choose Democracy, well, I'm exhausted. I'm in this ancient guy, 83 years old, and I'm really exhausted from all the work we've done to prepare the country. And it looks like he's got very little to show for, uh, I mean, he's really ridiculous. So I'm bailing. So I bailed out of the effort after two weeks after the election because he just wasn't at all ready. And I'm guessing that the reason he wasn't at all ready to do a serious coup attempt, you know, he did January 6th and so on. He did that stupid stuff, but it was not a serious coup attempt. I've read the history of coup attempts. I know that's not what you do. (laughs) What he did is not what you do. I mean, just as an example, his son-in-law was on the phone election night trying to find lawyers who would go to court to contest the election results. 
in various states. Election night. I mean, this was typical Trump, right? This is the Trump who goes bankrupt when he runs gambling casinos. This is the Trump who, who's a, a doofus. He's a terrible organizer. But what really counts is that we were able, in my view, I don't have evidence for this, but in my view, we were able to get the country so well prepared that smart organizers who might have worked with Trump to pull off a decent coup attempt held back and did not come forward to organize a decent coup attempt because they knew they would be beaten. We would beat them. And so I feel very pleased with the work I did last year. (laughs) And I was very, very pleased by that. (laughs) So one of the alternative worldviews that was possible was that the demonstrators who on January 6th were taking over Congress, that somehow that could have been the folks fighting the coup that Trump had organized. I mean, you know, there's a the first level, which is Donald Trump organizing, leading, inciting a coup attempt against the fact that Biden won. And if he had been more successful, let's say, in his coup attempt, what would Choose Democracy have done instead? What's a good way to resist a coup? And this part of what, you, of course, you were teaching leading up to the election. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I believe that the uh, we've kept the website up the Choose Democracy website. So it's online. So it's very easy to go online and find the materials that we created on how you resist the coup. So for anybody who wonders, uh uh-oh, what if he had been effective (laughs) at trying to launch a coup, then all you have to do is go and choose democracy and you can read the material on the very specific things that you do. That material, by the way, that we gathered is from scholarship into how to defeat a coup nonviolently, because there have been a whole bunch of coups that have been defeated nonviolently. And so that's what we did the research on. And that's what we advise people to do. It's basically non-cooperation. And different people can non-cooperate in different ways, depending on what their job is. But you can non-cooperate with an attempted coup in quite a variety of ways. And so we, we lay all that out on the Choose Democracy website. You only need a few percent of the population to be committed to your ideas to have a successful resistance to uh, installed government, right? I mean, it's something like that. That's right. It's not a big deal. It's not, it's not a heavy lift if you've prepared What's remarkable is that there are cases, for example, a few years after the First World War, Germany defeated, it was a mess, the right wing was unhappy with a lot that was going on in Germany, decided to spring a coup on the people, a plot, you know, hidden plot suddenly, and they got part of the army on their side. And so the guy, Wolfgang Kopp, who was going to lead this coup, tried to lead the coup. He occupied the presidential palace and found that there was nobody there. <laughs> he, he wanted to issue his manifesto announcing to the country that he had taken over the country, but there was nobody to type the manifesto and he didn't know how to type himself. <laughs> so the next day he had to bring his daughter who knew how to type to type the manifesto for daddy that said that he was running the country and so on and so on. It went on like that because just at that decisive moment when he was asserting this, the smart people on the left who had been squabbling with each other, the leadership said, oh, well, let's make common cause and get rid of this jerk 
and then we can go back to squabbling with each other. <laughs> and so that's what they did. They made common cause. They non-cooperated, general strike, and so on, telling the whole civil service, don't go to work, and therefore they weren't there to type the manifesto and so on. And, you know, in, in a matter of days, it was a matter of days, COP was uh, done. He was toast. And that was without prior organizing. So we knew it is possible to defeat a coup nonviolently. The thing is, it's just going to, it's going to be less ulcer producing if you prepare ahead of time (laughs) and know what you're doing instead of have to improvise at the moment. Yeah. (laughs) Well, one of the things that I thought about it coming up to the election, I was well aware, let's say on the left or on liberals or progressive side or whatever, there was definitely a certain percentage of the country, which should be sufficient to oppose any coup as per your research. But I was also quite aware that on the right, or I don't even know if I would describe Donald Trump as right wing, whatever he is on his side, on the side of dictatorship and coup, there's certainly a percentage of the country who would go for that as well. And so we find ourselves, I think, more divided in extremis than hardly any other time in the history of this country. I understand around 1800, there was that kind of deep-seated division in the country. So how can you do peace in such a divided time? A lot of people are just throwing up their hands saying there's no hope for the country now. Right. Well, as you know, Mark, I'm a, my academic training is sociology. I did a lot of graduate work in sociology. And the thing about sociologists is that we tend to be preoccupied with questions like this, questions of polarization of any system. If we look at a family system, we ask ourselves, to what degree is it coherent internally or to what degree is it polarized, right? And we're just, at, you know, any organization you show us, that's one of the first questions we ask ourselves, even if we don't ask anybody else, what's really going on here? Are these people united? Are they divided? And so on. So a dozen years ago, Mark, when I was looking at the trend that I saw already of developing polarization in our country, I was really worried. I was worried. It looked like things were getting bad. A dozen years ago, already there were signs. And so I became concerned about that. And yet I was struck with the contradiction between that perception of my country and what I was learning through research about the Scandinavians. Because the research I was doing, I was writing my book, Viking Economics, and I was very curious not just to put in the book what the Vikings are doing these days. It works so well, puts them at the top of the heap of all the countries in terms of democracy, equality, individual liberty. I mean, all these different things that Americans want so much, the Scandinavians already have gotten. Right. And they've had for 50 years. So I was very much wanting to, and I go ahead, did go ahead in the book and to tell how things work over there and why they work so well. But I was also curious, well, how did they get there? Because that's a big question, right? And as I was deeply researching their history, I found that they made their big leap forward at the very time when they were having the greatest polarization they'd ever had in modern times. 
Nazis marching on the streets of Norway, Nazis marching in Sweden, Nazis marching in Denmark. Now I'm talking 1920s, 1930s. And at the same time as the right wing was mobilizing like crazy, so also the extreme left was. The communists saying, we're going to take over, you know, there's going to be dictatorship of the proletariat and so on. So that's a big polarization. I mean, that's politically speaking, bigger than we've got in this country, bigger polarization, you know, with the uproar that goes with all that. People screaming at each other, nobody listening to each other, that kind of thing. And so how I was wondering, could that have been the period that they made their big leap forward and became the most successful societies in the world? So I had to um, really try to wrap my mind around that. So I thought, okay, George, now you're fascinated with Scandinavia, but think about your own country, other times of polarization. Well, how about the 1930s in the United States? Very polarized. Nazis able to fill Madison Square Garden for a rally. And at the same time, the 30s was the glory period of the American Communist Party. Polarization. We're talking serious polarization. Workers taking over entire factories, occupying them, and so on and so on. A lot of conflict, a lot of violence. Ku Klux Klan going crazy, right? Lynching, bombing, and so on. So we had all that going on in the 30s. And the 30s was the decade of the greatest progress that we made in the first half of the 20th century. That's when we got Social Security, for heaven's sake. That's where we got all kinds of strides forward during the period of greatest polarization. Well, now I am reeling, you know, my head is like going crazy. Like what's going on? What's going on? My prejudice about polarization is this terrible, terrible thing. But yet I find people are getting very positive outcomes out of periods of polarization. So naturally I had to leap ahead to the 60s and 70s, which probably some of your listeners remember living through. And I certainly vividly remember. And again, American Nazis showing up and growing. And again, Ku Klux Klan, bombing, churches bombed all over Mississippi and so on, and killing. And and on the left, crazy stuff going on on the left. Anybody remember the Symbionese Liberation Army in California (laughs) and other crazy stuff that that was going on in the extreme left, the Communist Party and the Trotskyists and so on, growing. And so we had this enormous polarization going on in the 1960s, but Mark, It was the period of the greatest progress that we made in the second half of the 20th century. It was when we finally recognized the the environmental consequences and said, you know, Earth Day and all of that. It was a period of tremendous progress on racism and women's movement and gay movement and just all kinds of things moving forward. So what is going on here? And I am in a bewildered state, but I've been in, I'm getting used to being bewildered. (laughs) (laughs) And let's fast forward a little bit. There I am in Glasgow, Scotland on book tour for Viking economics, because the Brits are fascinated with Viking economics, but Viking economics, which is still selling well, was book of the week, according to the London Times. And so Viking economics was doing really well. I was running all over Britain. And in Glasgow, I was being put up overnight, given hospitality by an artist, a Quaker artist, who uh, had turned to making metal sculpture. That was the form of his art. And I was wandering around his house looking at these gorgeous things. And I was saying, look, man, I don't get how you can make such gorgeous stuff out of a stubborn material like metal. He smiled and said, oh, George, come with me. I'll show you. So out the back kitchen door into the backyard, there his studio is. We go into the studio and he proudly shows me his blacksmith's forge. 
And he says, yeah, I had to apprentice to a blacksmith to learn how to do this thing. Because you're quite right. Metal is resistant. Metal doesn't want to do what you want to do. And so you have to soften it. You have to heat it. And when you heat it and make it malleable, then you can do what you want. And I say, thank you, John. The guy's (laughs) name is John Creek. You have given me the metaphor that enables me to wrap my mind around this contradiction. Polarization is the blacksmith's forge. It heats up society and makes it malleable. Now, of course, the malleability makes it possible to make all kinds of stuff, right? So once you've gotten the metal plastic enough, soft enough, you can make junk with it, (laughs) or you can make horseshoes with it, or you can make gorgeous art with it. So it's not like the forge has an opinion about what you should do with the metal. (laughs) The forge just heats the stuff and it's up to you to make what you want to make. So in Germany and Italy, for example, where polarization, the forge was really working in the 1920s in the same period as the forge was working in Scandinavia. But in Germany, obviously, the metal that was made was formed into the Nazi Germany that we know of with Hitler at its lead. In Italy, the forge was working and the outcome was Mussolini and the fascists. So it's not that polarization has an opinion. It kicks up all this stuff. It makes stuff happen. And some of the stuff is going to be terrible. Some of the stuff is terrible. We find more killings going on now, more violence. Anti-Asian is a current expression that is appalling, but it's been going on now for years. More and more and more people killing each other in our country. The violence is increased. We would not have had January 6th if it hadn't been for polarization, right? Polarization yields the Proud Boys. (laughs) It yields all this stuff on the right. And it yields the Black Lives Matter movement and extraordinary demonstrations in small towns in Kansas of white people saying Black Lives Matter. All of that is the outcome of polarization. And then the question becomes, do we have smart social movements? Do all your listeners join movements social movements that are smart and have smart goals? And do they join those movements in order to make a better society? Because that's now available in a way that it has not been available since the 60s and 70s. We can make giant strides forward now that we could not make 20 years ago, that we couldn't even make 10 years ago, because the forge is pumping up the heat and it's possible to do now what we could not do before. And that's the important thing. So the mistake that people are making is the same mistake I made. It was the biggest professional mistake I've made in my life was to misinterpret polarization. I'm embarrassed about it as a sociologist. I should turn in my, turn in my. Your membership card, right? (laughs) My membership card. Yes. Yes. I'm embarrassed. I totally misunderstood polarization as I find almost everybody is misunderstanding it right now. Woe is me. Woe is me. Look at all this violence. Look at all this right wing stuff. Yes. It's all part of the package called polarization. And the question is, Are we going to organize smart movements as the Scandinavians did, as we did in the 30s? We did develop some very smart movements in the 30s and in the 60s, Dr. King and the rest. Are we going to do that with polarization? Or are we going to do what the Germans and Italians did in the 20s with polarization? It's our choice. The opportunity is here. The question is, what are we going to choose to do with this now malleable metal? Horseshoes? Art? 
Let's do that. We'll follow up more on that exploration with George Schleicke in just a moment. But I want to remind you, you are listening to Spirit in Action. And certainly George Schleicke has been that for so many decades. And he's been yeast for the rising bread. One of the things that he was just talking about was having smart change leaders there. And one of the organizations he's helped create is Training for Change. You might want to follow the link from Northern Spirit Radio dot org for that. There's all kinds of links to organizations that George Lakey is connected with. Wagingnonviolence.org is one of them. If you can't memorize all of these things, the one thing you need to memorize right now is northernspiritradio.org. I'll have all of the links there. The first time that I interviewed George Lakey was back in August of 2010. I interviewed him in 2017, twice in 2019. So this is time number five. And all of those interviews and all my interviews going back to 2005 with all of the wonderful change makers, the world healers are on northernspiritradio.org. Please follow links to them from my site, post comments, and remember that we have a way for you to support us. So you can find where to donate to Northern Spirit Radio on our website. Even more so, I want to make sure you support the local community radio stations who carry this program. Right now, for Northern Spirit Radio, we're carried on some 42 stations nationwide. And those people are so important. I especially want to call out KLOI, Lopez Island, Washington. Right now, they need you to step forward and support and make sure their program can happen. Please support your local media because they're invaluable and give us an alternative to mass media now owned mainly by six corporations, 90% plus. We need you to support alternative media and community radio stations certainly give you music and news you get nowhere else. So please start by supporting them. Again, George Lakey is here. One of the things you were just talking about was having smart change leaders. And I, and I mentioned training for change. Have they been able to continue to do their work? Because part of what they're doing is creating the smart change leaders that are going to be there when we have a coup and we need to choose democracy, et cetera. What are they doing these days? Thank goodness the crew that took over Training for Change after I left. I left after 15 years, retired, and went to teach at Swarthmore College to be a professor there. And the gang of young people that I had trained took over Training for Change, and they are way more technologically happy than I am. So not only has Training for Change flourished since I've left, but also it's flourished in this COVID time. Because these are young people who have figured out how to teach successfully and train successfully via Zoom and have come up with all kinds of tricks and so on that enable them to be effective trainers on Zoom. And so people can just go to the Training for Change website and sign up for courses on how to use Zoom more effectively in doing adult education. So that's a new current that's been going on among these young people. Fortunately, the current director, Zane Nakoda, of Training for Change, co-facilitated with me the Choose Democracy work that we did last fall in preparing for the coup that we were able to avoid. He, Zane, is one of the teachers of this, and he co-facilitated and made our trainings. We trained 10,000 people, and he made the trainings highly effective because he knows how to do the razzle-dazzle that totally leaves me in the dust. 
I want to talk again a little bit. I mean, you talked about the blacksmith's forge, which is polarization. You mentioned, you know, in Germany and Italy, it went one way, but in the U.S. at a couple different times, it's gone a very different direction, a, a direction that you and I would identify as positive. Can you point to anything that helped make sure that those change leaders were there in the 30s or in the 60s in the U.S.? Because certainly it could look like a throw of the dice, whether it goes one way or another. Has there been any analysis? Have you done the analysis to make sure that you saw historically what was the difference that things tip either towards the Nazis or the black shirts or towards FDR and the, the New Deal? We can learn from mistakes made by others, right? So I think it's reasonable for us to look at Germany, which I know better than Italy in terms of history, and see some big mistakes they made that we could make, but I hope we don't. <laughs> One of the biggest mistakes was that the left, part of the left, got fascinated with the Nazis in Germany and started to think that it was their mission to handle the Nazis themselves. So they would go to Nazi demonstrations and tackle them violently, try to suppress the Nazis. That it even escalated to the point where a favorite tavern frequented by Nazis left people would go and pick a fight with them. And of course, the Nazis were definitely reciprocating and, and trying to choke the left. So there got to be more and more street fighting that was going on between the uh, more extreme left and extreme right. And the more of that level of violence increased, the more alarmed the political center became, right? It's a question of law and order, and it's a question of security. You want your youngsters to be safe on the street, but does that mean they shouldn't go anywhere where there might be a fight and who knows where the fight's going to be? And so that breakdown of law and order then was used by the richest of the elite in Germany to say, we need to assert control and stop the process that's happening. Now, part of the process that was happening in the middle of that polarization was that the left was making gains. The labor unions were making gains in that period of the, of the Weimar Republic. And that, of course, didn't sit well with the economic elite because the economic elite was indeed threatened. You know, it's, it's not physically threatened, but its riches were threatened by the growth of the left. And so the economic elite said, look, law and order comes first. We have to get law and order. Now, who would be able to establish law and order? And there was Hitler saying, I'm the best at that. And they gave the job to Hitler, thinking they would be able to control Hitler. And they thought wrong. Big mistake. Big mistake. But in their economic self-interest, in order to push down the left. Now, that scenario could play out here, I think. That is, the economic elite is definitely threatened by for example, labor unions. That's why labor unions are in such trouble today, because there's been a series of administrations in Washington that have undermined the ability of organized labor to organize. And the benefits to the billionaires, we've been making a billionaires like crazy, more and more billionaires, including during COVID times. So there's more and more poverty in our country. There's more and more billionaires in our country. And the economic interests are served by opposition to the left and specifically opposition to the workers. So I can imagine as polarization continues that there's more and more threat to law and order. 
and the economic elite making an alliance with the right wing in order to create a fascist state. Not many people know that in the 30s, there were some of the top economic elite people who did talk with a military general about maybe it's time for a coup. Franklin Roosevelt is letting labor get way too frisky. And it's cutting into our profits. We don't like that. So maybe we need to oust Franklin Roosevelt and establish a dictatorship here in order to protect our interests. They were not able to talk that general into that. I'm happy to report, (laughs) as we obviously know. But nevertheless, that tendency is always there to make that German calculation. It was also an Italian calculation. And Mussolini was basically, the state was handed to Mussolini by the economic elite of Italy. So this is the problem. I call the economic elite basically center. I mean, they're mostly, you know, center right, but they're kind of, kind of center. They're not fascists. I don't think they're automatically fascists, but I think they would be willing to make a deal with fascists in order to control the left if the left continued to grow as it's bound to do in a period of polarization. The forge encourages the left to grow and the right to grow. (laughs) And then it leaves the center with the question, where should we go? As you describe this stuff, George, and folks, we are speaking with George Lakey, wagingnonviolence.org is a good place to follow his post. There's also George Lakey author on Facebook. These links are all in nordenspiritradio.org. Antifa, And actually, the riots following Black Lives Matter, the fear on the part of people who were pretty much in the center was pushing them, I think, towards Trump. So I think that actually Antifa and burning down buildings here and there only feeds the scenario you're talking about, which in Germany led to the rise of Hitler. How do you see that? I've done a public debate, actually, at the Howard Zinn Book Festival in San Francisco with Mark Bray, who is the author of the major book on Antifa. He's a historian who did a wonderful history book of Antifa, of uh, anti-fascist movements in various countries, including ours. And he is also friendly to Antifa. I don't know, he wouldn't agree with everything Antifa does, but he's friendly to that and therefore was willing to defend it. So I proposed to Mark, who we were both being published by the same publisher. I said, yo, Mark, why don't we have a public debate about Antifa? And he said, yeah, that'd be great. So we had a wonderful, rollicking time in San Francisco with a room totally jammed. With people in which I argued very strongly against the Antifa strategy of trying to take on the uh, right wing and trying to control it and trying to press it back into the cracks uh, from which it comes. And he argued, on the other hand, that Antifa is a, a splendid thing and that we should do exactly that. With and, and it's okay to have general hubbub going on. And Portland, Oregon is a case in point. So, yeah, I think that's very alive. I think Antifa is definitely, a, has a terrible strategy, in my opinion, and I'm on record about that. And historically, you've got the basis for saying that strategy goes nowhere good for the interests that they think they're representing. Exactly. One of Mark's arguments was, yeah, but you got to use violence with fascists because, uh, you know. <laughs> that's all they understand. <laughs> right, right. And I said, well, wait a minute. In the United States, we have what Germany didn't have, which is we have the history of the civil rights movement, which was able to not only control the Ku Klux Klan, that is push it back, but it actually made progress toward racial equality in states like Mississippi that the Ku Klux Klan practically controlled. 
So we have the enormous good fortune. We are so lucky that the civil rights movement's history is available to us in living memory. I mean, my first time arrested was in a civil rights Senate. In living memory, we can find out from, okay, John Lewis died, but there are still some people alive. <laughs> and lots to read and lots of wonderful movies. Freedom Song, I strongly recommend the, the movie Freedom Song, very available. And really look into the history of how the civil rights movement dealt with the rightest of the right, right? The Ku Klux Klan is a terrorist organization, and it was a torturing terrorist organization. I mean, not just bombing, but torturing when it got the chance to do it. I don't know an organization worse than the Ku Klux Klan, and the civil rights movement was able to handle it nonviolently. And that's my point to Antifa, who say, no, George, you got to use violence against fascists. And I say, you're absolutely wrong. History shows that nonviolence is a superior way of dealing with the right-wing terrorists. One point that came to my mind while you were talking about, again, you said polarization is the blacksmith's forge, that you can make tremendous strides forward in times of polarization. One of the issues I have with my compatriots on the left end of the spectrum is that we'll get someone into office, we'll set the stage, you know, whether it's Obama or someone else who could do it. I actually, uh, I understand that JFK, when he got into office, he says, you're going to have to make me do the things that are going to improve this country in terms of racial equality, etc. We need to force the people in positions of leadership. And people on the left, or at least a significant percentage of the folks towards the left, as soon as they win the election, they say, okay, I guess that's done. I'm sitting down. I don't need to do this. I can go back to doing the things that amuse me. The complacent And I think that's one of the strengths of being in the midst of polarization. People are less likely to sit it out. Your thoughts? I completely agree. There's also a misunderstanding about where the biggest and most weighty push is coming from for elected officials. Joe Biden, for example, right now, but uh, liberals occupying congressional seats. There's a misunderstanding about that that has been clarified by research by political scientists at Princeton University. They got very curious about, you know, who has the most influence on how American political policy turns out. And so they, on a federal level, identified well over a thousand decisions that were made over a period of time. And in each decision that was made, they asked the question, where does the majority of Americans stand on that question? And where does the economic elite stand on that question? Well, of course, in a number of cases, the majority and the economic elite happen to agree. So they got very curious about what about when the majority thinks one thing and the economic elite thinks something different? What happens then? They found in almost every case, it's the economic elite that gets its will carried out by the politicians, not the majority of Americans. So by the end of their study, and this is very available online, you can find this study easily. At the end of their study, they come to the reluctant conclusion that if democracy means majority rules, that's not what we've got in the United States. When BBC came across this study, it reported it immediately to the Brits, to the world, and called it the oligarchy study. 
The authors didn't use that word oligarchy. It's kind of a loaded term, but BBC called it that. And so the way to find it by Googling online is just to Google oligarchy study or Princeton oligarchy study, and it'll come right up and you can read it for yourself. But I think that's very, very significant that we imagine that somehow there's our mass, you know, public opinion once X and then the economic elite, I mean, they have more power than they should, but they're still, you know, a small bunch of billionaires and so on. Turns out they run the country. That's a shocking thing for Americans to come to grips with. But if we don't come to grips with that, then we make all kinds of bad decisions about, oh, good, Joe Biden, he looks after us. He will take care of us. He will do the right thing. Not if the economic elite doesn't find it in their interest, he won't do the right thing. And it doesn't matter what Joe Biden personally wants. And it doesn't matter what the majority of Americans want. What matters is what the economic elite wants. That is what is going to determine the policies for the next four years and onward. That's been the system that we've been living in for quite a long time. There are international rating systems, Mark, for almost everything. You know, the world's happiest people, the this, the that, the other thing. So one of the rating systems internationally, this is again easy to Google, is democracy. All the nations of the world are rated by four categories, democratic, flawed democracies, mediocre, you know, and then out and out dictatorship. We used to be in the first category, the democratic category. A few years ago, we were demoted to a flawed democracy. So even for those experts who do those ratings, this country is no longer a democracy. So you've got the Princeton oligarchy study documenting it, but you've also got international ratings acknowledging that we've lost our democracy. I think it's time that we have a democracy. And I actually think the majority opinion ought to be in charge of our country rather than the economic elite. So all you listeners who agree with me will want to be doing something about this if you care about your children at all. The future is dependent on this. One reason why we don't have climate handled by now. Obama, when he was president, he told John Kerry, John Kerry being senator at that time, hey, we control both congressional houses now. We're, we're in charge of both houses. And this is the first part of Obama's term. So let's do a climate policy. I ran on a climate policy. Let's do a climate policy. Round up a senatorial bill and be back to me as soon as possible. Kerry comes back and says, I'm sorry, Mr. President, but you cannot get a decent climate bill out of the Senate, democratically controlled Senate. My Democratic colleagues will not go for a decent climate bill. This is years ago, right? This is under Obama. We could have been on the road to climate adaptation under Obama's period, but the Democratic senators would not have gone with it because the economic elite has absolutely no interest. Exxon loves getting taxpayer subsidies for drilling more oil and for finding more oil to drill. Why would it want to give that up? Well, the answer is it won't give it up. And the Democratic Party will go along with those interests because that's who's running things. So that wake-up call enables us to take advantage of the polarization, which is getting everybody moving and out of their seats. It gives us the chance to do it no longer with blinders from high school social studies, <laughs> but with the reality that comes out of the Princeton research machine. 
and being able to operate, therefore, in ways that can actually change our country and give our kids a future. I'm a great grandpa, for heaven's sake. I want my great grandchildren to have a decent future. And if you read the climate stuff, they're going to have a terrible future if we don't do something very different very soon. So much of what you say is absolutely compelling. You heard my little speech at the break, George, where I said that alternative media is so important. One of the tools of rule of the oligarchy of the economic elite is through media. And you certainly know how much of the media is controlled by just a few corporations, really. My recollection is, and this is from high school, 10th grade U.S. history, that during the Spanish-American War, the way that was fanned into existence was by yellow journalism. That's when the origin of that term, I think, came up. That media control can determine peace, justice, every issue that we have. How have you, as part of wagingnonviolence.org, training for change, choose democracy, how have you wanted us to engage with media? Well, the way you're doing it, Mark, I mean, you're an example, you're an inspiration, and the independent media are extremely important. And now we have, coming to your aid, the advantage of online sources as well, right? Mm-hmm. So we can use those who aren't able to listen to you can be online and discovering a lot of valuable information in that way as well. But we've also heard how foreign sources were able to tilt our election by using the Internet. <laughs> I don't think anything's for sure, no matter where we go. <laughs> it takes discernment, no matter what. I mean, one reason why I love writing for Waging Nonviolence is because it, the editors, I know the editors personally, they're people of enormous integrity, and they're constantly focused not only on analyses of what's going on, but also what we can do about it. And I, being a practical person, I was brought up blue-collar, working-class lad. My family was always about, and what do we do practically about this, right? <laughs> so one of the things I love about Waging Nonviolence is that the people who read Waging Nonviolence are people who are, by and large, practical, want to organize things, want to make things different, and need a strong and reliable source of information, and they can get it there at Waging Nonviolence. I thank you so much for a life of waging nonviolence, of bringing change into this world, change that you and I and the majority of people can easily embrace, even though some media might mislead us to not supporting your point of view. I'm so thankful for the wisdom that you then channel into your books. And again, you've got your memoir coming up. Uh, you signed for it yesterday. How long till release to the public? What are we talking about? Timeline? Nine months? Six months? Nine months? Okay, six, nine months. Well, if COVID just continues for long enough, it'll probably be six months, right? <laughs> Fewer demands on George Lakey to go out into the world. <laughs> <laughs> but in the meantime, people are reading Viking Economics in order to get a sense of what we could have in this country, because it's very practical, and also how we win which is the current handbook on how to actually make victories along the way. 
I'm going to have links to those two books, to my interviews with George about those books and about training for change, the nonviolent inspirations that have moved his life and helped him be a force for good and change and peace and nonviolence and social justice. I'll have all of that on northernspiritradio.org. In the meantime, George, I am just so thankful for your witness, for your inspiration, for your wisdom, and that you joined me here today for Spirit in Action. I'm so glad you asked, Mark. Thank you. And again, the links are all on northernspiritradio.org. Follow them there. Listen to my previous interviews with George Lakey and join us next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on northernspiritradio.org. Guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. Oh